Ladies and gentlemen, I am your host, the Landover Legend, aka Big T, and this is another installment of the I Can't Make This Up podcast. Uh, today we got a special guest in the building. Um, he hails from New York. He is a, a budding entrepreneur who's running his own consulting firm uh, that goes by Casbury Consultant LLC. He's a podcaster. He's a husband. Uh, he's a manager of construction uh, pro- programs. And at the same time, uh, he's an all-around smart dude that I think will influence a lot of people once you hear what he got to say. Uh, and I don't want to leave out the fact that he's an author and he's dropping some gems that I think that everyone needs to pay attention to and everyone needs to be hip to because without information, without knowledge, we can't grow as people. Uh, I want you to go ahead and give it up for Trevor Casbury, everybody. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, man. That was a dope in, uh, intro. I like that one. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. You know, something, something slight. I, I, I try to, you know, work on it every day, and no one's perfect. So, this is what you get. You're gonna get this raw <laughs> and unfiltered. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to my audience? What's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Casterberry, CEO of Casterberry Consulting and author of the Futter Hustler book series. I'm uh, from the Bronx, New York. I'm a, a husband, a father of a three-year-old girl, and um, a, a protector of my village is really, you know, what I've been bred to be. So that's kind of, you know, I do everything I can to kind of develop my community, whether that's online, in person, or just my household and family. Okay. New York born and raised, I'm assuming? Yeah, Bronx born and raised. Bronx born and raised. Okay, you gotta make yeah. that distinction when you bring New York, right? Word. Okay, what was it like growing up there? Um, I mean, I loved it honestly. Like a lot of people not from the Bronx get crazy stories and stuff. You know, obviously there's crazy stories everywhere, but um, I wouldn't have traded it in. You know, when you growing up, when you, when you broke, you don't really realize you broke till you get older and actually got to start paying for stuff on your own. So um, you know. You know, I enjoyed it. I played basketball. Uh, my mom, because, you know, we was, she kind of was raising us, me and my older sister, she didn't really let me go out as much because, uh, you know, it was a lot of stuff to get into in the neighborhood. So, like, the only time I got to go to friend's house, we, I would, we would literally have to, like, go to each other's house but uh, on the way home before our moms would get home from work. So that's how, like, my first time eating Dominican food, my, uh, I stayed mm-hmm. at my friend's house too long. And uh, his mom came in and I'm like, oh, I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Miss Payano. I, I go home. And she's like, don't worry about it. You hungry? And, and she made some food. And I was like, I ain't know Dominican people eat chicken and rice. <laughs> so <laughs> so that, that was like third grade. So um, one thing I really liked about the Bronx, it was like uh, the block I lived on. It was mad. It was a bunch of black people, a bunch of Puerto Ricans specifically, and uh, a bunch of uh, like uh east i mean you know west african uh dudes but a lot of muslim ones specifically so you know literally just taking the elevator from i lived on the 12th floor you know until like until i turned like 16 so i got a different view of a different mindset of what growing up was in a box up top but um (laughs) just taking the elevator up and down every day and the smells of the food coming through the elevator you literally hitting different cultures so you know that's how i learned where bacalao was and, and you know fufu and all different types of dishes you just like 
oh, who cooking in that house? Like, that's how I learned what curry was. You know, you're just walking past doors. So that, that's my favorite thing about New York. Did it always smell good, though? I would think if no, I smell food no. when I walked in the hallway, I, I'd be like, what no, is that? Not not every time. It, it was a couple of dishes that they smelled, they smelled very foreign to my nose. And, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> my wife, she's actually from Ghana. And um, okay. even, even she says, like, yeah, some of them dishes smell a little crazy. Because, you know, she, she don't, you know, just because people from the same country, um, you know, people in northern Ghana eat a totally different diet than people in southern Ghana because they're not by the water and stuff like that. So same with a lot of the other West African countries. So depending on where they're from in them regions, it could change what language they speak, what food they eat, uh, what kind of cologne and stuff they wear and all of that. So, you know, it was a lot. But yeah, it was definitely something that didn't smell that great. Bacalao, that's a, uh, you know, codfish. I ain't like the smell of that for a long time, but eventually I just got used to it. So, you know, you just know, okay, that's bacalao, whatever. Okay. So you tried it though? Like you, you've had it even though you didn't like it? Oh no. If, if I didn't like the smell, I didn't try it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I can't do that. I can't do that to myself. I I feel you. You know, I, I was a picky eater coming up, you know, it took me 12 years to eat a cheeseburger you know and it's not all oh, the smell word. i just <laughs> you know i didn't try it when i was younger i just thought it looked it funny or something you know right. so as you mature um and you you know take that that uh step and you try something you never know you know and then next thing you know you you fixing stuff yourself and you putting other people on the stuff that's like that had that don't experience anything outside their own household or their own culture. You know, I would have never thought that I would eat Mexican food just because mm -hmm. I thought it smelled funny as a kid. And now, you know, I, I travel to Chipotle, not often, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I give them a poke, you know what I'm saying? Same with Japanese food or Thai food right. or uh, some some Pakistani food that I've tried that was all right. And not all, but you know, I, I dibble and dabble here and there. Yeah. Don't get me wrong though. I tried a lot of uh, food from different cultures. It just wasn't the ones that, not the ones that I didn't like the smell of. So like, uh, as far as like uh, Ghanaian food, like jollof rice and the uh, first time I had uh, lamb, uh, that was at a Senegalese restaurant. Um, what else? The first time I had, uh, the first time I even had fish that had the head on it. Cause growing up, we only got the fillets, you know, with yeah. no bones or nothing. But my wife uh, had me eating fish with a head on them. Even my mother was like, you ain't a fish with a head on it? <laughs> But um, you know that that was messing with her, and that joint is delicious. So um, <laughs> now, if I ever do go, you know, eat fish, I'm definitely keeping the head on. So it, it changed my whole diet. Um, even soup. My mom, my mom didn't make soup from scratch growing up. Now my wife, she make like peanut soup and, and spinach soup and stuff like that, split pea soup. So you know, I, I incorporate a lot of different stuff in my diet now. You said peanut soup. Yeah, that's a new one on me. <laughs> yeah it's like the the broth is made from uh peanut butter some mm -hmm. people actually leave peanuts in it for the crunch you know and um you know some people put meat uh i just do uh, all veggies so i just you know keep a bunch of chunky veggies in it um but yeah it's spicy yeah i like it it's my favorite one not the one she made uh new york is like a well, I say New York City is like a food city, you know what I'm saying? They yeah. having great food. How uh, crazy was it last year when uh, everything got shut down as far as like resources and everything? 
that was um I still remember it was like last year around like Easter time. I think it was like a day or two before Easter. I'm like, oh yeah, let me hurry up and go to get to the supermarket and get and get some stuff. Cause I know uh people gonna be flooding the stores. And I went over there. That was the first because you know, I was I was working in the beginning until they had me staying home. That was the first time I realized they had the lines going out the store, was only letting a certain amount of people in the store. I was like, oh, this is this is like a movie. Like, I'm hmm. like, I really gotta wait in this line. So I, I remember the first one I got to, I walked to, I'm like, oh, no, nah, I'm not waiting. I'm not waiting with 20 people in line outside of a store. I went to my car, I drove to this other drink that I, that I, another grocery store I go to. That drink, uh, they, uh, what was it? They were supposed to be closed by a certain time. And it's right across the street from a project development. So some people was going in without mask on. Somebody caught the police. <laughs> so the police shut the place down because people was in there with no mask on. So I couldn't go there. Uh, so I didn't have to, I had to drive the target and pretty much I could only get like what was left. I couldn't even get no fresh vegetables. Uh, cause all that stuff was taken. It was like, only thing left was like rotten tomatoes and old lettuce. So I had to get like, I had to get like, um, frozen. I don't even really eat frozen vegetables. We had to buy a bunch of frozen vegetables, um, you know, different types of snacks that we never had before, but we did a lot more cooking from scratch. That's for sure. Um, you know, luckily we we were home to actually get it done. Because if I if I was still having to go out back and forth to work every day, it would have been a lot more stressful. But because I was able to stay home, you know, we was able to make a lot of adjust to a lot of differences that was happening. I'm assuming you and your household doesn't really uh, go out to restaurants that often. Um, no, nah, not really. Um, like before we had my daughter, we used to go, um, especially like uh, the old place we used to. The last apartment we lived in was on uh, the Grand Concourse and Bedford Park. And that's like a, uh, you know, a high traffic area, it's, you know, on a hill where there's a lot of like small businesses there. So we, we used to eat at a lot of places over there, but, um, you know, now we, we definitely don't. Now that we got our daughter. And um, one thing was when we changed our diet and stopped eating meat, um, we realized a lot of stuff we cooked better than, you know, the places we was going to get it. So we was like, we just gonna stay home. Like it's no point in spending, an extra ten dollars to get a dish, uh, and it's 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 going to take longer because you know the kitchens and restaurants will be backed up. So technically, if we cook it ourselves, it's going to come out faster. It's going to come out better, and it's going to come out cheaper. So you know, we just realized it over time. It got to the point the restaurants didn't even seem convenient anymore, unless we literally didn't have any groceries. So yeah, we don't really go out that much. Yeah, I I say from my experience. Uh, I sat down at a restaurant for the first time last month since last, what, March? Mm-hmm. March 16th, I think it was, 2020. And it just was, I guess, it, I don't want to say it was boring, but it just, <laughs> it, it ain't feel the same. You know, I, I'm used to, you know, having people in the atmosphere, interacting and stuff like that. And then I felt kind of stupid walking in with a mask on and sitting down and <laughs> off. Like, that's what everybody say. <laughs> you know, so I was just like, that's, I don't know. It, it's just not the same. And right. it's, it's going to take a while to get adjusted, but still, it's like that, that pause that we went through. <laughs> it, it changed a lot of things so now i gotta not that i'm still thinking the same i gotta mm. i gotta change the way that i'm uh, expect things to happen you know so yeah. let me ask you this uh what uh what got you into consulting all right so 
I'll I, I tell a story from the beginning. Basically, uh, my senior year of college at a University of Akron in Ohio, mm-hmm. um, like that February, I was playing basketball, just regular basketball in the rec center and tore my shoulder out of place, right? And um, I'm, I'm 6'5", 260, right? Um, so, like, I, I had small hopes of, you know, you know, even if I get out of here, I could go back to, like, a gym that I used to play at and at least train kids on the side or something. Mm-hmm. But when I did, once I tore my shoulder, I'm like, man, I never had no real serious injury like this. You know, I, I'm done with basketball. Like, I, I don't even want to do this no more. And um, I don't like taking pain medicine, so I was in my room, and I just had to stay up that night, you know, until I could fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember it was All-Star Weekend. I was look, I was watching an NBA game and I was thinking to myself, all right, Trevor, you graduate in three months. You're about to have like $100,000 in student loan debt you got to pay back. You got to engine, you're going to have an electrical engineering degree. So that's great. And the most you probably, the most you're about to make coming out of college is going to be somewhere between like 60 and 70,000 if you find the right job. And I was like, how the hell are you going to pay that student loan back? And that's all I was, you know, thinking about. I'm just like, damn, that's crazy. The student loan more than I'm going to make in a year. And, you know, I never really had it play in my mind. I just knew the only way I was going to be able to pay for college was to get the student loan. And um, so I just sat there that night like, okay, you literally got to learn about business and money and investing and all of that. Because if you don't, you're going to be broke forever. Because, you know, I'm like, how the hell am I supposed to buy a house? I didn't know nothing about mortgages. I'm just like, how the hell am I supposed to save up? four hundred thousand dollars to buy a house in new york you know i was like and, and i'm only making seventy thousand i probably only keep 20 i, was like, mm-hmm. I can't work 50 years to, to get a house so um i was literally from that day all-star weekend of 2016 every day since then i've been studying business investing and all that other stuff but it all started from me just watching the nba game and i decided i'm gonna write down 10 things i would change about the nba to make it better and then from there, you know, I was still up. I was like, okay, this is getting, this is getting more interesting. So I started adding more details to it, more details to it. Eventually, I fall asleep. I dream about it. I wake up. I'm like, oh, nah, let me add to it. Let me add to it. Next thing you know, it started coming together. I'm like, all right, Trevor, imagine it. Imagine it's like your own pro league in the Bronx or something like that. So, I, you know, I'm like, all right, how many teams are you going to have? What the playoffs going to be like? What, the rule, what other rule changes are you going to make? And... You know, it got to the point because my arm was still in a sling, so I could only like type a little bit. I couldn't really write. And uh, I would go to class and the whole time just be sitting there thinking about this, this basketball league that, I, that I'm writing out. So I, I go to class, see, walk right back to my room, go right back, be right into it, right into it. <clears throat> and I, the only wall I really hit or the first wall I really hit was realizing like, OK, Trevor, this was cool, but. You already say you're only going to make 60000 when you get out of here. So you're never going to be able to pay for this gym or this league and none of this stuff. So now what? And, you know, something clicked in my head like, Trevor, just imagine, you know, just imagine you won the lottery or just imagine you knew somebody that had all this money. I'm like, imagine, imagine you bumped into Carmelo Anthony and told him about the idea. He was like, oh, word, I, I, I'll pay for it. I, I want to be an investor. Know what I mean, so when, when I got past that roadblock, it became, OK, Trevor, you got you to gotta write this out a lot more detail. It's not just about what teams is in here and stuff. Now you got to think about how much money everything going to cost and how much money it's going to bring in. So like as an engineer, you kind of get trained to, you know, look at data, you know, chop it up and categorize it and then figure out an answer, you know, in the future based off that data. So I was able to kind of use that same training and put it into a business plan, basically. So I just looked at the NBA, wrote down every single way to, that they make money. 
So, you know, mm -hmm. advertising, you know, insurance, they probably got an investment portfolio for the league. But, you know, I also, in, in having to write out all these things, I'm like, okay, you got to understand all these different industries, essentially, because they're streams of income. So I had to look up how do companies get sponsorships and, and what's, the, what's the purpose of it? And, you know, now I had to look up marketing and then I had to look up what's the point of, you know, how do they make money from insurance? How does this work? You know, and, and realize you need a certain amount of money, a certain amount of clients to make sure, you know, the amount of money bringing in, you're investing it and, and making enough profit that it'll always pay off more than what you got to dish out in emergencies, right? Then I had to look up the history of all the pro leagues going all the way back to the Negro leagues. So um, to this day, um, the Negro leagues is still like the, the as basically the biggest black owned business that ever had that, you know, we ever had because it had the most uh, black uh, employees with all the players and all the leagues and all those cities and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'm when I found that out, I'm like, damn, that's crazy. Like, who would have thought a sports league was technically the biggest black business, you know, that that was out and it's gone right now. So, you know, I started looking up the history of the NBA, the NFL, realizing they started as nonprofits, as like a 501c6, which, you know, basically doesn't even exist anymore. Because once people found out that they was nonprofits, they're like, y'all making too much money to be nonprofits. And it was <laughs> like a, a political move to just say, all right, we'll, we'll pay taxes now. Like, so um, learning all of that stuff is like, I learned so many different industries. I, I I'm no, I'm, at that point, I knew more about business than a lot of my friends that had business uh, administration and, and business management degrees and stuff like that, because they learned about how to manage like a store, or not so much how to like, you know, put together the, the, the funds and the structure and everything of a business. And long story short, when I put, when I figured out all those industries, I'm like, all right, Trevor, you don't actually need all the money to get this together. All you really need is for the business, uh, for the team owners to own all the businesses that it will take to run the league. Mm -hmm. So if you look at like the NBA, all the different NBA team owners got a bunch of other businesses that they use. Like Mark, Mark Cuban has tech businesses that they use to like do analysis for NBA stuff. Another guy has hotels. So, you know, that's where the NBA players stay and stuff like that. So I'm like, all right, Trevor, in your league, if you needed players to eat, one of the team owners got to own the restaurant. If you need jerseys, a team owner got to own a clothing store or a clothing company. You need, a, you know, the jerseys wash, a team owner got to own a laundromat. And it, it just kept going like that. Somebody got to own a security company. Somebody got to own a media firm, a uh, media company. So I, I ended up writing out this whole list of businesses that that's necessary. And um, to this day, I still got the document all typed up and everything. Hmm. Um, and when I came home uh, from college, all of my friends, I was like, you know, every time I link up with them, you know, we all celebrate and I'm home now. Maybe we drinking, we smoking or something. I'd be like, yo, let me show y'all something. And I showed them this business plan and talk it out. And I, a lot of you, not every single time, people like, yo, this joint is fire. Yo, how you figured that out? So what we got to do with this? What we got to do with that? And, and the whole point came just, yo, literally just pick a business on this list. If you get it open within the next seven to 10 years, we could get, we could literally start a pro league. You know what I mean? So I, and with my engineering background, I had, I, you know, I did a lot of AutoCAD. So I was able to hand sketch a drawing of like what the gym would, would have, you know, other rooms and how we make money off the rooms, how big the court is, the bleachers. And, you know, it was like a perfect storm. Um, right now, that's not really, you know, especially after COVID, that's not really a dream of mine anymore. Mm -hmm. But that that experience gave me that that confidence and that interest and that background. 
and even that competitive nature to start learning business. So once I got the whole business side of it understood, then I started looking into investing. So I started learning about stocks and real estate and all of that stuff. So by the time I graduated, I graduated college, I had $300 in my pocket. That was it, no job. <clears throat> and But I, I had a list of the first 20 stocks that I knew I was going to buy once I did have enough money to buy stocks. So literally, I was just, once I got my job, I was just waiting for $1,000 to pile up because I knew exactly what I was putting it in. Uh, or because I spent that time, you know, three months straight, just studying every single day, business and investing. And you don't realize how, how much you can actually learn in three months when you do it every single, when you do something every single day. Um, so <clears throat> eventually I, I learned a bunch. I started investing by the end of that, by the end of 2016. Uh, me and my wife, uh, we get married and we move out in 2017, like in March of 2017. We find out literally the next month she's pregnant. Uh, so a month after that, I'm just like, damn, yo, you're going to have to start that business ASAP. You thought you had seven to 10 years to start a league. You need money now. <laughs> I'm like, listen, Trev, maybe you just need another source of income to fund the league, right? So I, I again, I got to manipulate my mind to say, all right, you just do this other thing and it'll work. And uh, I was watching an interview. It was uh, Dr. Boyce Watkins, because he was like the dude I was watching that was like giving me the confidence that you can start a business, but not only can you, you need to. And the fact that you're watching this channel and taking in this info, let me know that you want to, right? <clears throat> he was interviewing Andre Hatchet, which uh, I call him my, my business mentor now because we, we speak uh, semi-often and I ask him for, you know, some information every once in a while. And he, you know, he holds me and my wife down a lot. Um, and at the time I'm watching the interview and Andre Hatchet is like the, the king of the mobile notary business. Uh, so if you look up mobile notary, you'll find his name. Um, he was talking about that business and how, you know, it's a low cost, uh, high, you know, and, and recession proof business, right? Mm -hmm. On uh, Dr. Boyce channel. And I'm like, damn, maybe that's something I could do. But in that same interview, he ends up saying in the same breath, the fastest growing business in America as, as far as small businesses is the consultant industry. So I'm like, Trevor, you can start business consulting tomorrow. You don't got to go get a license or nothing. So that was literally that same night in the interview. Again, he says, he tells people, if you uh, if you really want to start a business, you need to make a step towards, you know, launching it every single day. So day one, if you say you want to start a business, at least buy a domain name. So literally that night, I bought Castleberry.com, made a Castleberry consultant Instagram, and then, you know, it kind of been history since then. It, it started with business consulting. Eventually, I added on investing. Eventually, I added on negotiating. And then uh, once we started offering all three and I had other businesses I outsourced to, I decided, you know, I, I needed a new title because it was hard to, uh, you know, say what we did without saying so many words. And um, that's when I looked up different types of consultant industries and logistics consulting was like the most accurate description of what we did, which was, uh, you know, find the kinks in people's supply chain operations and their daily operations uh, to either help them, you know, fix current issues or avoid future issues with their businesses. Wow. And you did all this fresh out of college. Yeah. <laughs> Within the, basically from, from May, 2016, by May, 2017, my business was open. That's dope. A lot of people don't accomplish uh, half of those things, <laughs> you know, in their forties sometimes. So I think that, I don't want to say that it was like a a blessing in disguise, but 
you getting hurt led to you, you know, finding something great within yourself and pursuing it and not only pursuing it, but, uh, bringing it into reality. Like, so what, what, what motivated you, um, besides, you know, the thought of, you know, being a father and wanting to be a business owner, it, was it just the people that you spoke to or the, uh, the conferences you saw or the interviews you saw, or was it just, you know, everybody around you, you know, believing in what you, you know, your ability to make things happen? Um, so really it was, um, in me talking in me discussing the, the whole basketball league with so many people, I realized, you know, people my age and adults, you know, all the way up to like my mom's age, most of them didn't know anything about business. So when they see the whole business plan, they always asking, wow, how do you know that? Oh, okay. So how you knew this? Okay. How you knew that? And I'm like, damn, like, I didn't think I know this much more than, than the average person about business. I thought I was the rookie, right? Cause I, I only had three months in. I'm like, so what do the people that got business degrees look, you know, learn? So I had to look up what they learned and I realized they didn't learn none of the stuff I did. Like I asked one of my wife's friends that had a business admin degree, you know, um, I asked her about LLCs and EINs and stuff like that. She didn't know what I was talking about. She was like, I don't know how to do none of that stuff. Like, I just got a business administration degree. <laughs> so <laughs> so wow. I'm like, yeah, that's it. Like, at the very least, I could start teaching people, you know, this stuff. So um, my <clears throat> and having them conversations, just all the, all the questions people were asking me, I, you know, I started writing them down and kind of writing the answers to it. Then I'm like, okay, Trevor, how can you actually get this info out? I'm like, most of these people not really, if they don't know this stuff, then they likely not interested in it. So I never thought about actually putting it in a book. And I'm like, I never even read a business book because they probably, I assume they was boring uh, or they talked in a language that I didn't understand, you know, up until that time. So I didn't want to write one because like the people I needed to teach didn't read business books. So I was like, okay, maybe I could just start, you know, making videos online and then have the people watch the videos. And then eventually I just have like, longer discussions that show them how to break it down and they could just buy the video and you know that's kind of how it started um before i even did the video thing you know i had friends randomly when they you know somebody would be like yo trevor i heard you know about business i had an idea that i wanted to run by you so when more and more people start asking me questions and you know i basically was already consulting like one friend wanted to start a, a, a you know like a theater company where people can come do plays and stuff so i, I you know, gave them my, my recommendations and stuff based on my own research. And, you know, I realized, Trevor, all you had to do was charge them $30 to, to sit with you and boom, you, you were a consultant. So that's how I started. Cause I was like, I'm not going to charge somebody less than what I already get paid in my job. Mm-hmm. I was like, you just charge somebody $30 for an hour and boom, you just, you just start small. And, and as you get more confident or your, or your clients get more, you know, progressive, you can raise your prices. And, you know, it just went little by little. Um, the first, I would say the first hiccup I ran into though, was, uh, that same summer I tried to do like workshops. So mm-hmm. I, I rented out this room in a WeWork center. My first, my first workshop was fire. I had somebody come have food for everybody, you know, like 12 people came and all of that stuff. So I, at the end, I think I profited like $60 after I paid for everything, but you know, it just felt good to know I could put something together and like some strangers show up to hear me talk and like one was a teacher another one was uh, a guidance counselor her husband and stuff so I'm like okay these random people you know trust my word mm-hmm. and um and it was good feedback so the next one came 
like eight people came. Then the next one came, four people came. Then the next one came, two people came. And one of them was my line brother. The other one was my sister-in-law. I'm like, all right, Trevor, this is not working. <laughs> <laughs> and literally, I ain't selling without one more ticket after that. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, this business stuff sucks. <laughs> and and um, I remember I went on my dude Bobby Stowe's radio show to promote it. And he was and uh, he was like, where's the classes? I was like, oh, they're in Harlem. The other ones is in the Bronx. And but the radio show was in Brooklyn. So he like, damn, so you don't got you don't got no workshops in Brooklyn. What are we supposed to do? I was like, come to the Harlem ones. <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, damn, Trev, you, that was probably the wrong answer. You should have just found a, a Brooklyn spot to hold a Brooklyn lesson, because clearly that mean people in Brooklyn want this stuff. Mm-hmm. They had a lady calling in like, yeah, well, I'm in Houston. How do I access the information? I'm like, oh, my God. And uh, that's when I realized, Trevor, don't do no more in-person workshops. Just do everything online. So I've, I've, I've actually been using Zoom since 2016, since that lady in Houston said, how I'm supposed to access your information. Oh, um, man. Word. So, you know, it, it's just r- run into an obstacle, find a solution, run into an obstacle, find a solution. And it's like, basically, as long as my clients is trying to do something similar to what I was doing, I could, you know, lead them the same way. You you brought up something interesting when you said that you was discussing, um, you know, EINs and everything with the uh, mm. person you said had a, a business administra- uh, administration degree. Yeah. <laughs> how, how do you think people have that disconnect from like someone who did the research on their own and, and got a little experience opposed to you going to a four year school? And I guess you would know the basics, but you won't know, you know, all the ins and outs of actual business like why why is it isn't all that encompassed in the education that you're paying for you know so i'll answer that two ways one uh i don't think many people go to college to to prepare for entrepreneurship i know that's not why i went there Mm -hmm. when i first went to college i really just wanted to get an electrical engineering degree one day make enough money to buy a house get married and have a fence like you know the american dream kind of thing and uh, like every year I realized I was further and further from not happening. Um, but like even myself, I had a, I got an electrical engineering degree, but I didn't really take the stuff as serious until I started researching business. And I realized I could save money um, on that gym for the league if I got my professional engineering license, because then I could, I could um, certify my own drawings instead of hiring and paying somebody else to do it. So until then, I was just learning what I had to learn so I could get my degree and get a job and do AutoCAD. And it just would have been a regular thing, same kind of thing I did at internships, nothing special. But once I had like a goal that was attached to what I was learning, then it became like a whole drive and a plan and everything. So unless somebody already like, let's say their parents already own a business and they know they're going to take it over when they get out of college, uh, they probably don't have a way that they feel, you know, that they're going to implement that information while they're learning it you know what i mean like so if you can't if you can't use it while you're learning it it, it's almost like the same information you did in like middle school you just feel like this is work you gotta know for later you may or may not use it um so i think that's why people that get those kind of degrees may not know that kind of stuff and the material that they learn is really just like the same stuff they learn in economics classes about supply and demand you know calculating production and production rates and stuff like that Oddly enough, people that have economics degrees are the ones who end up going into logistics consulting and things of that nature. Um, 
and I, I have like a totally unique perspective on, on the logistics side of it because I come from an engineering background. So again, I just got a totally different mindset coming into business than somebody that would have had a business degree um, because I was pursuing entrepreneurship. Um, <clears throat> but I always said for the price that college costs, uh, if you get a degree, whatever major you have, I think they should be teaching you how to start a business in that industry. You know, that way you can make the money back, you know, because I'm like, if I get my undergrad degree, of course, if you are like if I'm a college, because I even I thought about if I had a college as a client, I'm like, all right, the way you make money is your undergrads, you make sure enough of them come back to fill up the grad school program. And then the grad school program, you make sure enough of them come back to fill up the Ph.D. program. And then at that point, all you got to do is keep undergrads coming in and your whole school is filled. You know, it, it don't work perfect like that, but that's the basic logistics of it. <clears throat> and I'm like, how the hell am I supposed to come back for a master's degree if I'm not making enough money after my undergrad degree? So I'm like, why the hell they don't just have everybody learn how to start a business? Y'all going to access for alumni donations and all of that shit anyway. So like, it, it just baffled me. Um, so that, that's a question I got. Like, why don't colleges just teach how to start a business in every industry that you got to major in? But, you know. I think that'll <laughs> that'll take away um, the cogs they need for the machine to keep going, you know? True. So, but again, it, not, I don't feel like you should be going to college to get, uh, you know, a job that your college degree didn't prepare you for. Like, what college degree really prepare you to be an administrative worker? You know what I mean? Like, but I, I think a part of it is just you got to compete with, with older people that already got 20 years or 15 years in the industry. So the only thing you can do to, to kind of give yourself any kind of, you know, leverage is say, I got a degree. Other than that, I don't really see why a lot of jobs have degrees. Because, you know, I wrote in my book, uh, For the Hustler Volume 1, one of the quotes in there is a college degree is not an asset, it's a certification. And I compare it to like my lifeguard certification and OSHA certifications and stuff like that. How it just it just give you eligibility for a certain job, you know, an asset you really should be able to sell it, leverage money and borrow against it and stuff like that. You can't sell your degree. So <laughs> that, that's my view. <laughs> man, oh man, oh man. <laughs> my man speaking facts right now. I, I can't even I can't even lie about that. So for the hustler, uh, what inspired you to write that book? And did you see yourself becoming an author? Oh, uh, no, I never saw myself becoming an author. Uh, growing up, I wasn't a, a big reader, but I did like to write a lot. It was just the kind of stuff I read would be like articles and, and manuals as opposed to like books and fiction books and biographies. I wasn't really into that. But um, <clears throat> my wife, she's she's a publishing consultant. So um, mm -hmm. after after we got married and found out, you know, she was pregnant in April, I think in uh, July of that same year, she got fired. And oddly enough, she was an administrative uh, worker at an engineering firm downtown. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so she, she got fired while she five months pregnant. And then out of nowhere, it's just like we went from a household of 100K to a household of 60K. So it went from us living with, you know, buying art and putting it on the wall because we because we living good to like damn which bill i'm not gonna pay this month so <laughs> and um you know it it, it was real it was just a, a real big shift and then with her being pregnant it was like we got to prepare for after you have the baby are you going to go back to work or what and so 
anybody that live in New York knows that childcare, like, you know, babysitting and uh, daycare and all that stuff is like, it's like paying a second rent. Like I know somebody that owned a daycare and it was like, yeah, they, they family, they friends and family price was 1200 a month. So <laughs> I was just like, how the hell I'm supposed to pay this? Like I already, I pay $1,400 a month for the one bedroom we live in, in the Bronx at that. Like it ain't even no lavish apartment. It's just the ceiling's high enough that I couldn't touch it, you know? <laughs> and then, <laughs> so um, basically after she had the, the baby, she, um, she took her senior thesis, which was a collection of poems because she got an English degree and uh, she, you know, expanded on it and turned it into a book called Back to Kukrensini, which is the, the um, city that she's from in Ghana. And, uh, you know, it's like uh, all the poetry kind of talked about her experience as a Ghanaian American uh, who was essentially raised in Harlem, but in a traditional household and like with all the conflicts that she had to go through. And, um, you know, and, you know, growing up as a, a black woman, but also having the African tag on it and, you know, the nuances there. And later on, you know, I got so frustrated because my prices had to go up because I was getting better at consulting. Um, but a lot of my clients or, or my, my audience that I really was going after originally, they either one, didn't have the money to pay my higher prices or two, they weren't ready to like, you know, it's like if you're paying a lot of money after a certain point, it's because you already own a business and you're trying to fix a certain problem or reach a certain goal. So somebody that don't know much about business and just want to learn the basics, not going to pay no $80 an hour just to learn the basics, you know, whether it's worth that or not, they just don't have it. So I had to figure out a way to still one, get the, get the information to my initial audience, which is people who don't really have the money or the, or the financial literacy, but also find a way to monetize it too. Cause I'm, I can't, you know, work for free. You know, if that's the case, I might as well just go to my job. And, um, Eventually, my wife just looked at me like, why don't you just write a book then? And I'm just like, <laughs> I don't know. I, st I started trying to come up with excuses, but like there was just like no reason not to write a book. And so at that point, I was like, yeah, but like business books is boring. My audience don't read business books. She's like, all right, you're not a regular business person. Like you're not the, the rich dad, poor dad guy. You're not a economics textbook writer. You're a black dude from the Bronx. Write it, write a business book like a black dude from the Bronx. And I was like, all right, I'll think about it. And I watched a lot of battle rap. So as I'm thinking about it, we we watching, you know, Sue Surf versus who who was it like? Sue Surf versus uh Charlie Clips or something like that. Or maybe mm -hmm. it was him versus Tay Rock or something. But you know, in listening to that, I'm like, yo, Trev, this this could be your way of playing with that. Like you you ain't no, you're not a rapper. But like you could use that same kind of vibe, the same way like Loaded Lux could could teach a lesson in rap, you could teach business and, and you know talking the way that you talk. So that's what I did with the book. So um, what I did, I made eventually it became you know I put in fifty quotes because uh, my wife already had the the format ready because mm -hmm. again she a publishing consultant, so this is what she do for her clients. <clears throat> and uh, so we we decided on what she calls a motivational quote book. So it's fifty quotes a passage with each quote and then um, a blank page behind each passage so you can write down whatever thoughts you have. And um, pretty much whenever you write a book like that, the whole point is for somebody at point A to, you know, achieve a specific goal by the end of point B. So with that, with that one, it was all about, 
teaching people how to um, identify the, you know, they exist in skill set and they exist in resources and giving them different ways that they can monetize it. Um, and I was like, I can literally write this book, sell it for $20 and then now I'm good. And I don't actually have to meet with people and they, and technically they don't even got to pay me $30 an hour. They paying me $20 for life, you know, just for the book forever. Um, and you know, that's kind of how it went. The one thing I added to it, cause you know, again, my engineer mind and then my business mindset was just how many ways can I use this book to either make money or market myself, you know? And I was like, all right, I got my, I got my hands. So people know I'm black and stuff like that. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know the, the, the way it's sitting, like I'll show you the cover, like, uh, the way it's sitting, like you get a different vibe. This don't give you, you know, rich dad, poor dad vibes. Right. Yeah. So, um, um, I had it like that. And I was like, all right, the, the title of the book is for the hustler. So you, you could really hit your target right there. Right. And, you know, I, I got my, I got my face on the back cover. So literally somebody that I knew from like summer camp and middle school stopped me on the train. Cause he saw me reading the book and he saw my, my face on the back cover and remembered my face. He was like, yo, you're Trevor. So I'm like, okay, this definitely works. Got my Instagram and everything going in, but I'm like, Trevor, you misses something that makes the book pop. And that's when I decided, all right, you got 50 quotes. How can you use this to help other, other businesses? Because that's what you do. And I was like, I'm, a, I'm a, in the table of contents. I'm going to take out the, you know, where, where we say quote one, page one, quote two, page three. I'm going to take out the part where it say quote one, quote two, and I'm going to put different Black businesses there. And I was like, the way it'll work, because I had to like ask my, my, my wife, my aunts, uh, my, my sister, my nieces, different questions and stuff just to see how it would work logistically. And it was like, if I put the, the name of the business there, then people don't really know how to go buy something from the business or look it up, right? So I was like, I got to put the website there. And then I'm like, I don't want to put the website in a description of what they do because then if you give somebody, you know, if, if I say, oh, this is a, a weave uh, company and they, and they sell wigs. Now, if you read in the book, you just like, yeah, I ain't going to that website. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> But if I just put, you know, blackbeauty.com, you don't know what it is. You're like, I'm going to click it. Let's see. And then you're like, okay, weave. All right. Do I know somebody that needs this? Let me share it. Because, you know, you can hit it right on your phone. So I I was like, I'm only going to put the website in the table of contents and on the quote page. And I was like, and this is my way of literally giving free promotion to 50 black businesses for life. And I was like, I don't, I don't even got to sell the ad space, even though I could. I'm like, just give it away for free. And you just build the relationship with 50 black businesses. Easy. And, you know, boom, it worked. And next thing I know, people was loving the book. I got, I got a cousin uh, who was locked up. I sent him the book. The book was so good. He was showing it to a younger dude that he said uh, was in prison with him that uh had had dreams of uh you know designing clothes and stuff when he got out so he was like yo read this book my cousin wrote it yada 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 he told me like uh pretty much where he was at what everybody would do is put their pictures up on the wall with all their friends and stuff that was out Mm -hmm. and when people come to your cell you could like show proof of who you was and who you know so he was like once he would show people the book and be like yeah my cousin wrote this they'd be like your cousin wrote it he'd be like come to my cell i'll show you the pictures and anything (laughs) So with that, you know, he built a status just off this. So all the, all the dudes, you got to think all the dudes in prison that's thinking about business and got their head on straight, he attracted them as opposed to, you know, the dudes that's in the craziest stuff. Yeah. And um, 
the dude that he let borrow the book end up getting moved to a, a new prison uh, and, and left off with his book. He stole the book. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I was, he told me, I'm like, oh, how you going to let him skirt off with your book like that? <laughs> he was like, yo, he better he better not be at the next spot. I was I'm like, yo, chill. I'm, I'm going to send you a new copy. I'm going to just send you two copies. I was like, keep one for yourself. And the other one you lend out. He was like, nah, send me two. I ain't lending nothing out. Nobody can <laughs> say. So <laughs> I sent him the two new copies. That he, you know, he would tell me about what was going on in the prison with the books. He was like, you know, people would be coming to his cell. Like, it would be dudes that leave the library, go straight to his cell. Like, yo, let me read the book. He's like, all right. But to read my book, I got you got to let me hold your book you just got from the library. So now he, he using my book to leverage himself to read more books. I'm like, yo, you you basically hustling in there. I know this book goes sparking there. Keep sharing it with people. Keep sharing it. One day he calls me. He's like, yo, you wouldn't believe we are here in Sing Sing. The COs and the prisoners is all debating over one of the quotes in my book that said, uh, good credit won't solve low income. And he said, you wouldn't believe like COs that never speak to them would be like, y'all know what y'all talking about. You need good credit because this, that, 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 that. And he was like, another CEO would be like, actually, my credit not good, but I make more money and I could do this, that, that. And then the prisoners getting into it. And uh, it was just hilarious hearing that, you know, the discussions that they used to have used to be sports and, and whatever they used to do before they got locked up. And now you got a bunch of different dudes serving a bunch of time in there talking about business and credit and <laughs> investing and stuff like that. So, you know, those stories was, was my favorite stories about the book, but uh, that, that's what made me write the second one and got me writing the third one now, just because I know the information is valuable no matter what, uh, you know, what timeline in terms of your business journey or your entrepreneurship journey you're in. Okay. So uh, before I get back into that, uh, Cassidy versus Hitman. Son, I didn't, I didn't even watch it. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I, I don't want to watch the Cassidy battle. <laughs> um, and Hitman, he got some battles that I like, but I'm not the hugest Hitman fan personally. So I like I knew the face the face off. I knew it was going to be more exciting than the battle. So I watched the face off, but I didn't watch the battle. And I got a bunch of my friends that did watch it, and they was like, "Trevor, you ain't miss it. That that was an hour I'm not getting back." <laughs> I me personally, you know, not that I'm picking sides. I, I think. I think Cassidy took that one, but it's always up for debate. You know, it all depends on how he you definitely won the face off. Yeah, so <laughs> it, it 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 was crazy as usual, and I didn't I didn't see that coming. But then again, twenty twenty one has brought a lot to us that we never <laughs> expected to see. So who knows right. what's next? For so sure. um, uh, focus on the problems you will solve, not the money you will make. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah, so um, so I don't even remember what I put in the passage, but I know for a fact when I wrote the quote, it was like, if, if you start focusing on the money you're going to make, you're going to be one stressed out entrepreneur. Because in the beginning, the money is just not coming consistently and it ain't, it's definitely not coming fast. If it do come fast, it's going to be inconsistent like a mug. So, mm -hmm. um, but if you focus on the problems that you're fixing, like, you know, the same way, I want, maybe I, I wanted to sell a thousand books in the first year. I sold a hundred. I wasn't mad because 
the people I had people buying the book, you know, that was emailing me and texting me, telling me, you know, how how fire the book is, and they sent they sending it to other people, and you know, my my cousin in prison, people stealing the book from him and stuff like that. Mm. So it's like when you focus on the value you bringing people and the problems that you're solving, you always continue getting better. So you know, you solve one problem, you end up finding a new problem that comes after that. So for me, it was like. People don't know enough about business. I'm going to teach them about business. Okay, now people don't know how to fund a business. So it's like, all right, I'm going to teach you how you could just, you know, what businesses you could start for a low price. And then you could use that money to fund the business that you wanted to do before. And it's like, they don't know how to write the business plan. I showed them how to write the business plan. So, you know, piece by piece going forward, because I was focused on the problem I'm solving. I, you know, I stayed focused and I wasn't annoyed at the fact that the money was coming slow. Because as you keep solving problems, the money is guaranteed to come. Uh, and it's this one dude named, um, I know on Instagram, his name is Sleepers for Suckers, but he had a quote to, um, that said, when you solve big problems, you get big paychecks or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was like, as you keep going, solve it. Same thing as when you were able to solve a lot of problems, you're able to get a lot of paychecks. So, you know, that's my whole thing. Focus on solving more problems and the money is bound to come. You focus on the money first, you're going you're not going to keep looking for problems to solve. Well, based off of everything you told me and, you know, you putting out information and, and the responses you getting, it's almost like you was like meant to be a teacher opposed to, you know, a student. Now you, you absorb information <laughs> and you put, you know what I'm saying? You utilize that to make things grow. Did you, you ever think about that or did anybody ever approach you and think that, you know, maybe you should, you know, be a teacher, not just a consultant. So, um, it's funny you say that. Um, so again, growing up, I didn't, I didn't, uh, grow up with my father. So I had like a real issue uh, with authority. Like I felt like, you know, most mm-hmm. people that was being authoritative was flexing their power. Oftentimes you, you they both. were <laughs> right. And oftentimes they were, but sometimes they weren't. And I was just in my feelings. And then, you know, when you big, like I would, when I graduated fifth grade, I was already five, six. So, uh, you know, people, it was grown men that thought I was grown men, like pressing me about stuff. It's like, yo, I'm the book bag <laughs> on my back is, is from, I got middle school notes in my bag, dude. Like what's wrong with you? So I, even playing basketball, dudes be mad that I'm hitting them too hard. And it's just like, dude, I'm 14. <laughs> <laughs> so um, growing up, I had an issue with authority. So I got into it with a lot of my teachers. The, the only teachers I always, you know, really had a lot of uh, a good rapport with was always the math teachers because, you know, they didn't really get a chance to flex their power. Either the answer was right or it was wrong. They, they couldn't dance around, you know, with, with examples and stuff like that. They, I didn't, there was no time that I felt like they could they could be cheating me on a test. It's just like either it's the right answer or the wrong answer. So um, <clears throat> I always like I always said growing up I would never be a teacher just because I didn't like the whole teaching system and yada yada yada. But as I get deeper and deeper into consulting, I get more and more like nonprofits that will reach out or have me do a seminar. And recently I um, <clears throat> I'm like I'm working on a deal now, basically with a school in Harlem to implement uh, financial literacy into their uh, math lesson plans. Uh, I'm working with two teachers on my own to put together the Further Hustler lesson plans where uh, we use content from the book to teach reading, writing, and math. And uh, we use like real world problems. So like the math problems would be stuff like, um, 
you know, the whole, the, it'll be a word problem, but instead of it being, you know, Mike goes to the supermarket and has 35 watermelons and the watermelons cost 250, it's more like your parents sent you to store, sent you to the store to get groceries to make uh, arroz con pollo. And then we give them the, the recipe for it. So it's like, mm -hmm. now we're hitting the black students and the Spanish students, right? And uh, uh, they, you know, everybody know it's like the first time your mother sent you to the store, at least where I'm from, first mm -hmm. time your mother sent you to the store to get the groceries yourself. And you better get it right. You better not come back missing them, right? So <laughs> you hear you. We put the list of the problem. You like you got to get each one, but you know it's like real world stuff. So you got if you need two boxes of rice, now you got to double how much it costs. <clears throat> when it's when it's time to get the chicken, you know it tell you how much it is per pound. So now you got to find out how much it costs. You know how much uh, meat you need and things of that nature, and using real world problems to actually. Uh, apply the math because the one thing you hear from a lot of people is they hate math and the main reason they hate it is like they say oh I never used it I never use a squared plus b squared plus equals c squared and it's like because I'm an engineer I do use that stuff but you know I could find ways to apply algebra to real life um, so I basically am doing more teaching right now and um, starting to work with more schools and working with teachers as we speak so um, yes, I, I do see myself doing teaching now. <laughs> the the Pythagorean theorem is a word <laughs> that I learned and, and haven't applied since I left. <laughs> I, there, there are no questions on tests to ask you <laughs> the, the name of the three boats that came over from England back in the 1400. <laughs> like, this was stupid stuff <laughs> that we all remember, or at least most of us do, that, that right. is useless. It is honestly useless. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like the Pythagorean theorem is not useless though. Engineers need that. No, 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 no. I said for people like me, you know what oh, I'm saying? I, I, so I, when you in <laughs> when you when you in certain fields, I'm saying like for me, I you know, I'm I, I was good at math. I was great at math. I was taking trigonometry in like the eighth grade. You know, mm. I was going to uh uh Maryland University and helping tutor freshmen there you know, during some summer programs for like, you know, uh, advanced college credits and stuff like that. Mm. But like you, I had a problem with teachers and teachers always, for me, they always assumed I had an attitude because I had a very stoic demeanor and I wasn't like a, you know, a, a happy-go-lucky people person. Mm -hmm. So if I didn't fit in with their, you know, their little box of what they think a kid should be, they always, you know what I'm saying, assume the worst. Oh, he's a troublemaker. Right. Oh, he has attitude and stuff like that. So that's how I lost respect for most of my teachers. And then when I started playing football and they seen me, you know, laying dudes out they they really didn't want that smoke so you know <laughs> it, it it was what it was plus you know they they kind of let football players do whatever they want you know especially when we got to pull out of class and you know skip or whatever we ain't like cheat and get like you know grades or nothing like that but mm -hmm. you know we we had a little leverage not too much though right yeah i felt like new york city basketball unless you like some top player in the city you don't really get no extra because everybody play basketball so unless you drop 30 last game don't no teacher even really care like i've seen the the nicest kid on my on my high school team uh not be able to play because the gym teacher is being petty and gave him a 55 on a report card mm. and it's just mm. like yo you know you know uh if his grades is not good the only way he getting into college is playing in this game did you think about that like that's how i used to think growing up it's like 
you know you're 35 pulling these stunts on a 15 year old and you telling us how the grade that we get in your English class affects the rest of our life. And I'm just like, no, it don't. Like, <laughs> no, it doesn't. But, you know, some people just used to flex that power. But again, if, until you find certain teachers and stuff like that, that you do have a good rapport with, I think it's it's obvious or, or a no brainer that you're either just going to fall in line or have a real hard time. There's no real middle ground until you find that teacher you really like. Yeah, everyone uh, learns at their own place, their own pace. And, you know, sometimes it takes a particular person and the way they instruct for you to actually learn or want to learn, you know? Right. So for me, it was my French teacher, Mr. Uh, Lucas St. Fort. I, I, I had a I had this big white dude teaching French my freshman year. And the uh, only reason I really wanted to learn French was uh, when I got to high school, my whole point, my mindset was I don't want to go to the NBA. Uh, I wanted to go play basketball overseas. Mm. Uh, so I wanted to play in like Italy or whatever. And I was like, oh, France. OK, they got basketball in France. I'll take French class. And uh, I just was not picking it up. I don't know what it was about the way he taught. But um, it was another teacher, Saint uh, Lucas Saint Fort, a Haitian dude, <clears throat> and he used to do uh, French tutoring on Saturdays. So it didn't matter if you was in his class or the other class, because he was the head of the French department, you could go to the Saturday tutoring. Uh, you didn't have to sign up or nothing; you just show up and walk in. So I went, <clears throat> and what he did, he was like, "If you're struggling in French, it's because you don't believe in the French. <laughs> so you need French everything. So when you walk in." He only playing music in French and he won't turn it off for the whole two to recession. He got French bread and French cheese or and French cakes and stuff like that <laughs> in the class. And he only is like uh, he was like, if you want my if you want my attention, you have to say Monsieur Saint Fort. So like from then you just like that's the one word you know you never gonna forget. It's Monsieur. And then it's like little by little. Like, All right, you want to use the bathroom? You gotta say this, you know and. Because it's like, you really have to use the bathroom. Like, please, please. He'll have you sitting there dancing, <laughs> trying not to pee yourself. And he'll be like, oh, are you trying to say this? <laughs> Did you say? He'll be like, all right, go to the bathroom. So that like the way he used it and like, you know, now I had to learn French because it, it affected my real life at that point. You know, I started to like it. And, you know, I, w- I was hungry on them Saturday mornings. So I used to be killing that that cheese and bread. <laughs> but I, w- I went from failing French to, to being one of the top French students in the school. I graduated like a 92 average of French all because of that dude. That's what's up. That's, yeah. Like, I, uh... that, that, that was my first time like, okay, not, now I see how this school stuff works. Yeah, I used to I used to speak fluent Latin. I took Latin for what was it? I think it was six years, seven years. And oh, wow. when they changed the the school di- uh, district zones, I ended up going to a school that didn't have Latin and they only had mm-hmm. Spanish. And I got D's both years. I took my uh, my uh, uh, foreign language, and I'm just like, whatever. Like I I, I went <laughs> to completely different. Uh, almost right. different hemisphere when it came to languages and it it never right. matched up like I got the basics uh never right. could speak it you know what I'm saying not even conversational Spanish and it just was like I was just like nah this ain't gonna work and it, it was what it was after that like I I retained some of the words like I recognized especially when I watched like Greek and uh, mythological movies and stuff like that but I I can't speak it fluent like I used to back in the day 
Yeah, high school. I learned. Uh, I, at one point, I was real good at Spanish because um, <clears throat> playing basketball, I started playing with more Dominican kids, and they they played in uh, this uh, real uh, high. Uh, Dominican area uh, called uh, Washington Heights in, in Manhattan. So that was my introduction to that area. So all the Dominican kids I hung out with all played basketball. Maybe some played baseball too, but like we all knew each other for playing basketball. So being out there, I started, you know, talking to more Dominican girls and stuff like that. So uh, back then that's when like sidekicks was in and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So you'd be on AIM late night. So I did like had Dominican girls on AIM, like we, they'd be teaching me Spanish on AIM and shit like that. So <laughs> that's that's how I got good at Spanish. And then I would use it like playing basketball with the Spanish kids. They would start speaking in Spanish on the court. So I couldn't hear what they were saying. So like they'll be like, yo, set a screen. But they saying it in Spanish. I'm thinking they just saying somebody's name. I'm getting hung up in screens and stuff. <laughs> so I, I started learning, you know, the basketball slang in Spanish at that point. So it got to the it got to the point. When I, uh, the basketball park by our school, because, you know, we was it. I went to April Lorando. That's on like 135th uh, on the west side of Harlem. <clears throat> There's a park not too far away where it's like mostly Dominican dudes in that park that play. One day, uh, one of them was like, they didn't, they forgot that, you know, I wasn't Dominican. So they tell me, come set a screen, but they said it in Spanish. And I came to go set it and they realized, oh, yo, this the... This the only <laughs> black dude that can speak Spanish. Next thing you know, they choose me on their team every time. And they like every time it was mad Spanish dudes versus mad black dudes. If I wasn't on the black dudes team, I'd be the one black dude on the Spanish guy's <laughs> team. <laughs> and, and, and I'm falling right in line. They, they speak in Spanish. I'm running plays with them. <laughs> and uh, it got to the point, one dude, I, I forget his name, but he used to see me out there and he used to tell his people like, no, 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 pick him up. He speaks Spanish and we don't have him. He's going to start telling people what plays we running. Because <laughs> I, I started telling people, yo, he cutting back door just based on what they were saying. So, you know, I got I got into Spanish real good. And then um, once I went to college in Vermont, that was it. It was, uh, I think, six Spanish people on the campus. So I wasn't speaking Spanish no more after that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Vermont, though? What, what made you go there? Um, I wanted to get an engineering degree and I went to play college basketball. So I knew I wasn't going D1. There were a few D3, there was quite a few D3 schools that wanted me to come for a workout, but um, I was in a like performing arts program in high school. I was in a step team. So my senior, my junior and senior year, I was captain of the step team. So the guy that ran that program, he used to try to get everybody to go to liberal arts schools mm-hmm. because his whole thing was black students always got the lowest reading and writing scores. So we need to send them to schools that got, you know, more reading and writing classes. It sounds good in theory, but I was a student that excelled at math and science uh, since I was a kid. Like my, my sister, she's six years older than me. She taught me algebra when I was in the fourth grade. So literally, I've been getting A's in math since since third grade. Um, <clears throat> so I, I went to a liberal arts school like he was talking about. I just went to one where I, I got a chance to talk to the coach before I went there. He said I could get a tryout. And um, I knew they had an engineering program. And I knew I didn't want to stay in New York because uh, – I used to always get in trouble growing up, either in school or at home. So I'm like, I, I knew in sixth grade, because I got on like a three-month punishment, and that was like the longest punishment I had at that point. Mm-hmm. I was like, I, I'm not going to high school in the Bronx, and I'm not going to college in New York, because I don't want to be coming home getting in trouble. <laughs> and I stuck to my guns. I went to high school in Harlem, and I went to school. I was like, no school. Is, I'm not applying to no college that's uh, within six hours. <laughs> 
and I went to Vermont, and uh, that was it. it. It was a good time, but the the engineering program sucked, so uh, I transferred. Wow, I uh, I don't even think I've ever been to Vermont, Connecticut, Boston, New York, uh, Nevada, Ohio. I I don't think I've been to uh, that far. No, oh no, I take that back. I went to Canada. That's the, right, right. That's that's probably uh, yeah, that is yeah. Uh, more north. So yeah, yeah. Vermont. It's uh, if you if you're not into snowboarding, skiing. Uh, you know, maple syrup, or <laughs> <laughs> or you know, I think the a lot of the black people I used to meet there is like they'll be from New York and they got in trouble when they was younger and somehow got shipped out to Vermont. Like, wow, honestly, not not anybody used to play basketball and they wasn't a student there, but they was black. Like, they'll be like, oh yeah, I'm from Philly. It's like, how the hell you got to Vermont? Well, I got in trouble when I was younger. I was like, that is not a, the full story. Like, how you <laughs> how you got to Vermont is what I asked. No pool. Where, <laughs> but yeah, Vermont. And then Ohio, which is, I don't know why. I mean, when I transferred to Ohio, it was um, uh, the engineering program I needed to transfer because uh, the second half of the program, I was supposed to go to University of Vermont to finish up. And they, they sent me a, a piece of mail in July, like July 1st or July 2nd, saying um, they had more applicants than expected and more transfer students than expected for the engineering program. Uh, so because of the excess competition, uh, I've been waitlisted. I'm like, how the hell I get waitlisted? And I've already been taking classes there since my first year in college. Like, I already have a GPA on your campus. They're like, yeah, but technically you weren't a University of Vermont student. You were a St. Michael student in your program. They were like, but uh, you could go back to St. Mike's and repeat some of the classes to raise your GPA and then reapply next. I'm like, hold on. So y'all telling me I could either stay on this wait list and wait for somebody to not come and then y'all tell me I'm good <clears throat> or go back to the school. I passed on my classes and like take some of them C classes over to try and get an A because that's the only way it's going to actually help my GPA. And most of those C classes were not my engineering classes. They were like, you know, English class and stuff like that that I just didn't care about because I was there for engineering. Like I paid attention in physics. I didn't care about, you know, the history class. Mm. And um, so I was like, after that, I'm transferring. Little did I know by July, all the SUNY and CUNY uh, applications are closed. So I had to go back to another school out the state. And I'm like, damn, it's already July. I'm not, I don't got no money. I didn't have a job yet. I ended up getting a job to like the end of July that summer. And I just had to look for... Basically, I went on collegeboard.com, looked for the best uh, engineering school that had a rolling application and was within the eight hours. And it was between University of Akron, uh, University of Ohio, and West Virginia University. And I was like, University of Ohio, that was a no. Uh, and West Virginia, i never forget when I was in Vermont, I used to always say this is probably the least diverse state in America. <laughs> and uh, and we did the we did the research because Vermont is 97 percent white, but it's actually like the fourth uh, least diverse. The number one least diverse was West Virginia. So I was like, yeah, I'm definitely not going to University of West Virginia. So that's how I, that's why I chose Akron. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, 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 I went through West Virginia a couple of times and uh, pulled it to a gas station. And I asked for directions to a place and swear to God, a guy comes out 
in overalls, grease on his hands, and says, what are you doing out here? I was like, hey, man, you have a nice day. I got in my truck and I left. Because <laughs> I, yeah. I just, I felt all type with deliverance vibes and some more stuff. I just was like, nah, I, I, I got to go. I, Word. I got to go. Like, and I don't got, and I didn't have a car or nothing. I'm from New York. So it's like, you don't get a car until you leave or until, you, you know, you graduate college. So I'm not, I'm not about to go to West Virginia and, and be on foot walking somewhere. That's not happening. <laughs> no bull. So uh, <laughs> before we wrap things up, man, why don't you uh, tell me about your podcast? Yeah, so uh, me and my wife, we started the um, Castleberry podcast. Where basically, uh, she's able to give off her book and writing and publishing expertise. And I'm able to give off my business, investing and logistics expertise uh, in a way that applies to people real life. So um, in the beginning, it was all like intro kind of videos. Right now, just because it was hard to find the time, uh, you know, we've been doing stuff on IG where it's like, you know, she'll literally ask me a question that her or one of her followers came up with about logistics. Like, you know, why does every business need a lo- uh, logistics consultant? And I'll answer it in a video. Then me and my followers, I have a publishing question for her. Like, why should people self-publish instead of traditionally publish? And she'll answer. So um, <clears throat> for all kind of information like that, uh, it'll be at uh, castpodcast.com or you could, uh, you know, go to, uh, no, it's at castpodcast.com or you could go to in, uh, IG uh, at castpodcast and see everything. But um, yeah, that's what we talk about. Uh, eventually we'll start getting more personal, you know, we'll be talking about, you know, marriage and parenting, um, but we're always going to find a way to apply it to, you know, generating an income. Because that's one thing everybody's trying to do that's in America. I know for a fact is we all need a new stream of income. Even if you got uh, $250,000, the people I know that make $250,000 trying to make more just as much as everybody that make $50,000. So, um, you know, the, the same way we uh, learn to apply schoolwork to our regular life, my wife teaches people how to apply books to their regular life. So her last book is called Why Every Pregnant Woman Should Write a Book. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it talks about the the financial reasons, the therapeutic reasons, the mental reasons, uh, and everything else. Uh, statistics and data on what women go through, specifically Black women, in terms of uh, you know childbirth and, and hospitals. Um, <clears throat> and then with me, with my books, uh, For the Hustle of Value One, again, teaches people how to identify their, their um, skill set and monetize it. For the Hustle of Value Two, which is right here, um, teaches people how to um, generate income through stocks, real estate, and um, equity investing. And it also debunks some investment myths. So some of the ones in there are, you know, um, is marriage a good investment for the primary breadwinner? Um, is is not donating the panhandlers considered um, selfish or greedy? Um, should you start in real estate, stocks, or equity, uh, stuff like that? Um, you know, should you buy a single family home or multifamily home? And right now I'm writing For the Hustler Volume 3, which again will be incorporated into the podcast, which will teach people how to generate income by negotiating. So uh, it'll teach how to generate income, uh, you know, like raising your income as an employee by negotiating for either a promotion or more uh, higher pay uh, as, a, as a consumer. So if you want to buy stuff for a lower rate, how to negotiate as a merchant, so sell, you know, uh, sell stuff to the best uh, consumer or, or for the best rate, and then lastly, as an agent or a closer or what I call a negotiation con- uh, a negotiation consultant, 
where uh, you find a business that needs a service or a product, you find another business or freelancer that provides that product, <clears throat> but you also have a product of your own that you can add into that offer to bring value to the end customer. Uh, and the main reason I teach that is because, you know, you may have a friend that, you know, rap and he, and he need a video shot and you got another friend that shoot rap videos. You put them together. Now they exchange the money. Maybe you make some money in the middle, maybe not. And that's it. They may have a long lasting career forever, but now that, you know, you get nothing. But if, if it's like you had some, you had the proper product to put in with that video, you know, <clears throat> that video director service or something like that. Now, every time that, that uh, business gives off or, or sells that video director service, you have a product that's bundled up in there where you're making money too, you know, in perpetuity. So now you don't have to make every sale yourself. Um, so that, that's like my, my twist on it as a, from an engineer perspective that I put in that book. But um, for those who don't have the book or don't have the book yet, you can uh, learn more about it in at a castpodcast.com. Okay. That's what's up, man. That's uh that that was a breath of knowledge. I think that a <laughs> lot of people uh they probably don't hear every day. And I'll say it's an eighty-five percent chance that that's true. And and that's why I created this platform to have those real conversations and talk about things and, and people that you don't see every day on information that's that's not on CNN, that's not on Fox News, that's not on MTV or, you know, the Shade Room or World Star Hip Hop, stuff that 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 can affect your life outside of, you know, what the president and the government got going on. So stuff that <laughs> right. you can control, you know what I'm saying? You can't control what the people in power do, but you can't control the everything that you got going on in your life and your circumstances just by educating yourself and preparing yourself and making things better for you and yours and create something for your legacies. For sure, for sure. Yeah, man. This this has been dope. And uh, you know, after I do the wrap up, uh, we're gonna have to talk about uh your consultant services for myself. Oh, for for sure. I I had some stuff that I wanted to talk to you afterwards about too. So for sure. All right. So I'm gonna go ahead and close this out and uh I just want to say this conversation has been very enlightening. It's been very, uh, very smooth. And uh, I want to say that uh, I can't wait for it to drop and get people responses. <laughs> I got I got a lot of people that pay attention to my show and they always be like, hey, man, how'd you meet this person? How you meet that person? And I say, man, I, I either do it through my show or through my social media. You know, people see my right. content and. You know, they they intrigued, they hit me up or, you know, I, I see their content, I hit them up and we converse and we make it happen that way. So, you know, luckily we was able to make that happen all through, you know, 2020's BS and, you know, 2021's uh, Enlightening, you know. Word. Yeah, so, I appreciate you for uh, having me on again. Hey, man, uh, we're going to do this again, for sure. For sure. But, you know what but, I'm saying? Book three, come. I, I'm going to have, I'm, I'm have book three out uh for Halloween, so uh, I'll probably come back around then uh, just to, to talk more about the book. And I definitely got to send you a copy in advance before I come out. Oh, that'll work. I was I was just about to say um, I, I got to get a physical copy. I, I do ebooks, <laughs> but I'm about to get a physical copy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, just, yeah. just so I, I can have. I knew the ebook would get to you right then. The Amazon be taking a long time to get my books out. They be playing. <laughs> 
Hey, <laughs> hey, hey, you might want to look into uh, you know, get getting that distribution, get adding that to the repertoire, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, man, it's it's in the works, believe me. My with my wife in the publishing game, we talk about it a lot, but um one thing we we haven't found is like a a black printing press, and that's mainly because the books are, are bought online a lot. So mm -hmm. really, the printing press will only be a distribution side. They wouldn't really be a manufacturer so much. Um, but we we gonna figure it out. Um, we we've been talking to a few people about it, but we gonna we gonna figure it out. And when we do, basically everybody I know that don't got a book out. Um, me and my wife will be coming for your heads, telling you all the reasons you need the right one. That's what's up. That's what's up. So, hey, man, uh, why don't you let the people know where they can find you at? Uh, again, my name is Trevor Cassaberry, CEO of Cassaberry Consulting, author of the Photo Hustler book series. Uh, you can get my books uh, in pre-order for the Hustler Volume 3 at hustlerbooks.com. Again, that's hustlerbooks.com. Uh, you can buy my uh, consulting services, whether you need to <clears throat> speak about business, investing, or, you know, negotiating, or just how to get into logistics consulting in general. Um, you can reach us at cassaberry.com. Um, it'll say at the top, you one click away from a free consultation. If you, if you want to speak to me for free, you get a quick, like, 15, 30 minutes just to figure out where you at, what goal you're looking for, and kind of point you in the right direction. We could do that uh and at the end we could figure out whether you need to speak with me directly you know in a, in a logistics assessment or if uh, you need to work with one of my partners whether it's a virtual assistant or a marketing person or my wife with publishing so you know it's like you meet with me but we're going we're going to send you to the person you need uh whether uh it's it's in 15 minutes or in two hours um if you do need the two-hour logistics consultation i'll tell you now uh, between now and June 2nd, we have it for half off uh, because we really want people to understand the concept of uh, customer acquisition, customer retention, and customer creation. So customer acquisition is basically your regular product. Like mine would be, you know, come buy my book, right? Customer retention is, okay, now that you bought my book, you know, you said you wanted to get into investing join my investment club because the dudes over there know more about stocks and crypto than I do. And I'm the one who wrote the book on it. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, customer acquisition is like from a logistics perspective, you have to think, imagine every, imagine everybody that is interested in your product. Like imagine you sold the oranges, everybody in the world that likes oranges already saw your oranges already know what they taste like. And they either buying them or they not either, either like them or they don't. You, you got two options. Either you go to the people who don't like your oranges and try to convince them to like them, or you go to the people who never had an orange in their life, don't know what it is, and you put it in their hand. Uh, so in terms of doing that, that's what we call customer creation, where we find other businesses who you know typically don't sell products like ours, and we bundle a product that we have in with what they already have. So imagine it was somebody who never liked oranges, but they got coconuts. So you work with a coconut company and it's like every coconut you sell, add one of these oranges in with it. And now all these people that usually like coconuts, they try to the orange. They're like, oh, this orange is good. Where you get this from? And now you got new customers in your, in your audience base. So we use that same thing with our uh, clients, whether it's, you know, storefronts or e-commerce businesses. And uh, that's really how to, what really sets us apart. Because from there, we're able to scale the businesses much faster. Um, so if you're interested in doing anything like that with your business, which you should be, 
you schedule it between now and June 2nd and you get it for half off. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard him. That was Trevor Casselberry. Hey, man, like I said, uh, this has been dope. And until next time, I've been your host, the Land of a Legend, a.k.a. Big T. And this is another installment of the I Can't Make This Up podcast. I can't, with a K, make this up podcast. You can find me everywhere. Podcasts are available. Also on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. And until next time, peace. This is Phase A.